Well, as we continue in our Isaiah series, it'd be really helpful to have that Bible reading open. So Isaiah chapter 6, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, and there's an outline on the back of the news. So there's translation points there in Dinka and Korean as well, if that's of help to you. But right now, as we come to God's Word, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you so much that we can come to you. And so, Lord, as we do that, particularly now, we pray that you would be at work through your word, enlivening our hearts, comforting our souls in the power of your spirit. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the years or even the decades preceding the death of Queen Elizabeth II, there was almost endless discussion, articles and blogs, not only about the line of succession, so who is in line next for the throne, and occasionally you'd read some sort of spurious gloating, like, I'm the 147th in line of the throne. I'm not, just in case you're wondering, but read an article like that. But also hear questions along the lines of, what will it be like under the reign of a new monarch? After such a long and steady rule... What will it be like as a new era begins? As Isaiah chapter 6 opens with the news of the death of King Uzziah, it marks one era ending and another era beginning. Uzziah had reigned Judah, so the southern kingdom, for 52 years. The majority of his reign had been characterised by faithfulness and prosperity. But in his later years, intoxicated by pride... Uzziah began to elevate himself over God. Uzziah began to look to his own strength rather than the Lord's strength. The name Uzziah actually means the Lord is strong. But Uzziah had begun to believe that King Uzziah was strongest. He had forgotten that whilst he was the king, he was not the ultimate authority. And so we read, we can read in 2 Kings that because of his disobedience that had resulted from his own inflated self-importance, the Lord struck him down with leprosy, which afflicted him right up until his death. And that's where we pick up today in Isaiah chapter 6. And as Isaiah locates himself in this era-defining moment of time, a precarious time in between leaders, an opportune moment for Israel's enemies such as Assyria to attack. King Uzziah's death is symbolic. It's a parable of what is happening for Israel. Isaiah's vision raises the question not simply of who is next in line or what will this era be like, but it really raises the question of who really is in charge. So verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, on surface level, that might not sound particularly dramatic, but in the original language, in Hebrew, it's actually closer to something like, in the year the king died, I saw the king. Or actually, in the year the earthly king died, I saw the heavenly king. So see what is happening in this vision. As Isaiah glimpses into the very throne room of God, he begins to see so clearly that it transforms how he sees himself 
and his people along with how he relates to God. You know, our, our culture so often proclaims that it's when you look deep within yourself, well, that's when you're going to begin to see clearly. But what we see here is that actually when you look outward toward God, that's when we actually see things as they truly are. That's what we're invited to do. So let's look at Isaiah's vision in three parts, seeing glory, experiencing grace, and submitting to service. So first part of Isaiah's vision, seeing glory. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is Isaiah peeking into the throne room of God, which is not some heavenly palace, but the heavenly temple. And as Isaiah encounters the glory of God, that is God's holiness made weighty and visible, we can only really begin to grasp the gravity and the extraordinary reality of what Isaiah would have, would have struggled to describe with words. The Lord is sovereign, that is, he is high and exalted. There is no one superior to him. Uh, the Lord is beautiful. Just the, just the trail of his robe fills the temple. Not even the whole robe, just the trail. The Lord is revered. So as the seraphim, these six-winged creatures are, are flying about, they are singing to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holy means that God is not only morally perfect, but also pure, righteous, and set apart. And of course, we know that the Lord isn't just holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, the magnitude of something, if you're trying to describe the magnitude of something, you convey it with the repetition of words. So there was no way of just saying holy, holier, and holiest. So, for example, if I was trying to describe the weather this week in Toowoomba, if I really wanted to communicate how foggy it has been this week, I wouldn't just say there has been fog or fog fog. I'd say fog, fog, fog. <laughs> and when you see a repetition three times, this is peak holiness. That means, as one commentator puts it, there is no one like him he has no equals, no opposite match, no rival to his knight, no competitor to his throne. At all the brilliance and strength of every person who has ever lived, every society, institution and nation, and it would still be just a speck in the bucket compared to the magnitude of how extraordinary God is. God's holiness is so spectacular, it cannot be contained and it spills out over filling the earth. Isaiah is getting a glimpse of that. You know, I think too often we can have a view of God that is far too small. It's really convenient to have a small view of God because when we do, the smaller the view, 
the less seriously we need to take God. We can just treat God as an add-in, as an optional, of someone to fit in with, with our plans and our ways. But here in Isaiah's vision, we get a glimpse of just how grand God is. He's transcendent, that is, he's other, he's exalted. But he's also not distant. His glory spills into creation. So you note that even the mere proclamation of God's holiness causes the whole building to shake. So in many ways you think, well, this must be in the best seat in the universe. Isaiah had the best seat in the universe. But know that this whole experience doesn't cause Isaiah to think that he's reached you know, peak VIP status, that he has the you know, global achievement for frequent flyer points or something like that. He doesn't think, yes, I've made it. Look how he responds in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me. Isaiah has just been pronouncing woes to Israel because of impending judgment, but now, having encountered the glory of God, he pronounces woe to himself. Isaiah isn't proud with some sort of inflated sense of self having been admitted to this this inner circle, but in the presence of God, not only does he recognise his own sinfulness, he says, for I am a man of unclean lips, not only does he identify with his sinful people, I live among a people of unclean lips, but he also grasps the incompatibility between his brokenness and God's perfection. He says, I am ruined. Isaiah understands that he is totally out of place in the context of God's perfection. Often, when people think about spiritual encounters with God, they're often described as serene and tranquil. Yet, often, what we read in the Bible time and time again is that, in fact, coming too close to God is a really dangerous thing. God is not tame or docile. Note that even the six-winged seraphim, as they fly about with two wings, they're using, the other, they're using two other wings to cover their eyes, such as the splendour of God's glory, and the other two wings to cover their body in reverence before the Lord. So see what is happening here. God's presence shines a light on our true condition. And on our own, our imperfection can't stand in the presence of God's perfection. That's the problem. Isaiah understood that. And when we hear that, we can kind of balk at that thinking, well, that's just not fair. Aren't we all the same? Aren't we just as good as God? And even if we're not perfect, surely that's okay. Surely I'm okay. But I wonder, how much injustice and sin are you willing to tolerate? God's plan is for none. We have this tendency, I think, as humans, to to both underestimate the height of God's glory and the depth of our sin. But as we look at the example of Isaiah, what we see is that when we're actually willing to recognise the height of God's glory, just to see him for who he is, not only does that help us to see our sin more clearly, our condition, but it should therefore shape how we relate to him. 
to the only response that makes sense in God's glory. And our sin is to begin with confession. Isaiah couldn't see himself from his own point of view. He had to see himself in light of God's point of view. And so he confesses. And just look how God responds. It's the second part of Isaiah's vision, experiencing grace. So verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There's quite a bit going on here and it can seem a bit fantastical or otherworldly or something like that, but it's really important for us to understand some of the details here. So remember, this is a temple. That's why there's an altar. Uh, The altar was the place where sacrifices for sin were offered. The fire, the fire represents God's anger against sin. When the original hearers would have heard this part of the vision of the coal being taken from the altar, they would have immediately thought about the Day of Atonement when the high priest would take the coals from the altar where sacrifices on behalf of the people's sin had been made, and then they would use those coals for for incense in the holy place. The, The coal is the tangible evidence that a sacrifice has been made on behalf of the people's sin. And so when the seraph takes the coal and places it, touches Isaiah's lips, Isaiah knows that a sacrifice for sin, for his sin, has taken place. Hence we hear the amazing declaration of his forgiveness, that his guilt is taken away, that the sin is atoned for. We're meant to understand that Isaiah's sin has been comprehensively and immediately dealt with. Note that there is no earthly priest making the sacrifice. Isaiah has not contributed to this in any way. No, this is the Lord's doing. Right back in chapter 1 of Isaiah, we heard through the prophet of the invitation to the people, come, let us settle the matter. But in their arrogance, not willing to recognise the Lord nor their sin they simply turned away from him. But Isaiah, in humility, confesses his sin and God paves a way for him to experience his grace. I can only imagine that when that coal, can you imagine that coal touching your lips? But when it touched the lips of Isaiah and he experienced the, the scorching grace of God, it must, have been both, it must have both stung and been glorious as he realises that he's both more wicked and more loved than he ever imagined. The amazing news is that the same can be for us. When we see our sinfulness for what it is, it can be ever so painful, ever so confronting. It's confronting to recognise who we've hurt or let down, our rebellion against God, of the relational fracturing or the other damage we've caused. But it's also confronting to realise that we can't do anything about it on our own. It was for Isaiah and it can be for us too. But the incredible news is that when we realise we can't do anything about it on our own, as painful as that might be, it's actually in this moment, in this space, 
that we have the opportunity to come to the one who can do something about it, the one who has done something about it. We can be assured of forgiveness because we know, actually even in a greater way than Isaiah, that there was an altar, the cross, where a substitute was made for us, once and for all. 1 John chapter 2 sums it up like this. He, that is Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Follow what's happening for Isaiah. When we see who we are in the light of who God is, that is, when we see just how glorious God is, and when we nestle ourselves into his grace, the only thing that then makes sense is to get on with orientating every part of our lives in service to the king, no matter what the cost. And that's exactly what Isaiah does. It's the final part of his vision, submitting to service. Verse 7. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Um, When we hear the questions, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? This is God, so that's the I. Uh, This is God consulting with those assembled. That's the us. And what's remarkable, I think, is that Isaiah is so grateful for the grace that he has received, this free gift of forgiveness from God, that he's only too happy to jump in at the opportunity to serve. There's no holding him back. He's, here I am. And what's amazing is that Isaiah, you know, says yes before he has even heard the task. I know what you're thinking. That is a total rookie error, isn't it? I love his enthusiasm. How could he say no to the holy God who's taken away his guilt? How could we? It feels a bit like when a friend of yours might ask, could you please do me a favour? And tell there's two types of responses. <laughs> Some immediately respond, sure. And others might say, maybe, <laughs> but tell me what it is first. But his eyes keen, he's all in. How could he say no to God? Until he hears what the Lord is requiring him to do. Verse 9. He said, that is the Lord, go and tell the people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. When Isaiah heard that, his heart must have sunk. And so he responds in verse 11, For how long, Lord? How long must I do this for? God's answer, which we see unpacked in the following verses, is until judgment is brought to completion. He's warning us, this is going to be a thankless and difficult task. There's nothing comfortable about it. God is in effect saying, everything you preach will never be understood. People are not going to respond. In fact, the clearer 
that Isaiah warns that judgment is coming, the more strident and hard the people will become towards that very message. In all four Gospels, we we hear these words uh, repeated. Uh, Jesus uses these words as a warning to those whose hearts were hard towards him. This is not God creating a trap for people. He's not tricking them out of being saved. This is part God bringing the time of judgment forward, like a tree cut down. This is part God giving the people over to the desires of their own heart. Don't forget, God has given them countless opportunities over generation after generation for them to turn back to him. But as they've chosen arrogance towards God and indifference to his message, God is now going to give them that in full measure. But how does Isaiah respond? Even though he must be reluctant, well, we can read in the rest of the book, he goes. Isaiah goes and does exactly what God has told him to do. Many years ago now, on the bus to uni uh, one day, I was listening to a talk on how we follow God one step at a time. And I remember that as I heard this talk, I realised that whilst I believed I trusted in Jesus as my Lord, if I was honest, I really kept on trying to squeeze God into my plans. There were certain things, actually, that I really didn't want to do if God asked me to do them. I had a 10-year plan. Most people surprised that it was only 10 years, but it was a 10-year plan. And there were parts of it, of course, that I, I didn't know, and so I was really happy for God to fill in the blanks. I entrusted him with the blanks. And I really wanted him to bring my plans to fruition. Looking back, as I see that, it was such an arrogant view towards God. But in that moment, on the way to uni on the bus, listening to the talk, I burst into tears because I remember feeling convicted by God to rip up my plan. I had been treating God like an assistant instead of the Lord of all. Who really is in charge? Having seen God's glory, experienced God's grace, Isaiah submits his whole life in service to the Lord. And God, God in his incredible kindness, well, he tells Isaiah that judgment is not the end. Did you see that? Verse 13. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. I um, remember visiting Marysville about one year after the Black Saturday fires that really decimated so much of that, that whole area. And as I visited Marysville, what really amazed me is that as I looked around and surveyed this charred landscape, trees fallen, blackened stumps, that amidst the aftermath, the, the comprehensive aftermath all over the region, you could begin to see green shoots of new life sprouting up. You hear, that's what God is showing Isaiah. Yes, there will be judgment, but that not, is not the end. For even out of the stump, there will be a holy seed. God will continue to work through his people, 
God will indeed bring about his purposes through his people and ultimately through his son. God would provide that ultimate seed in Jesus. A seed that Jesus said in John chapter 12 that would not just be planted, but a seed that would die in order that we might know life and be enjoined in his mission in the world. May we see his glory, experience his grace, and submit our lives in service. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. Lord, we pray that you would help us in the power of your Spirit to have a right view of your glory. And Lord, as we see you for who you really are, would you please shine a light in our hearts that we might see clearly who we really are. Lord, as those two things, two aspects of vision come together, we are only too aware of our need to run to you, that we don't have a leg to stand on. And so, Lord, we confess we are so sorry. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you offer us. We thank you that it's because that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus died for us, that we can rejoice in the forgiveness that you have brought through him. And so, Lord, in response to your great love and mercy, please help us to lay our whole lives down for you, every facet, every domain, that we might serve you for the rest of the days of our lives. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.